2: This fall marks the third academic year affected by the coronavirus pandemic. And while fights over mask mandates rage across the country, students and teachers are returning to the classroom, and they're hoping for some sense of normalcy after a year that's been anything but. This is disrupted I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. As students across the nation start school this month, we celebrate their return to the classroom with a back-to-school special. Later, we'll hear from an education researcher who studies the parallels between hurricane recovery and responses to the COVID-19 pandemic, and a conversation about college athletics with a writer from ESPN. But now we hear directly from students. Erica, Alex, Imani, and Zochi are students at New Haven's High School in the Community. We've agreed to only use their first names because of the nature of the conversation. They're here to talk about how they're weathering the pandemic and what's next for them as they return to in person learning. Erica, Alex, Imani, and Zochi, welcome to Disrupted. I'm so excited to be able to talk to you all, not just because of the reputation of high school in the community and how dedicated you all are to really affirming the voices of young people, but because we're all starting back to school after a year and a half of so many disruptions. So I want to start with any of you who wants to weigh in, how does it feel to be going back into the building and returning to school?
3: Well, for me personally, it's a lot better because there was like a couple of challenges, especially with being at home and trying to figure out my way with like family issues and things like that. So I feel like it's really good to be in a space where not only do I feel safe, but I have my community here. I have people I've seen every day. I have teachers I talk to. I have other students that I feel comfortable with just laughing. It's like a relief almost.
2: What's it been like for you, Alex, to come back, but also to navigate hybrid learning over this last year and a half?
1: Honestly, I was really excited to come back because remote teaching and learning is a lot harder because you have less teacher one-on-one. You can't really get to know your peers online. And so when you come into school, And that's when you actually like see people, hear their voices and, you know, interact.
2: Imani, let's talk about that getting to know your peers and interacting and building community. What's it been like to try to build friendships or nurture friendships when people are so spread out? For our listeners, high school in the community is not just a neighborhood school. It really draws students from across the area. What's it been like for you to to maintain that friendship and social peace as well?
4: Being away from friends and like not having the social interaction really made me like distance myself from a lot of people. Like every day I was waking up doing the same thing, like tuning in for school, but not doing the work. And I wasn't checking up on my friends or spending time with them. And I just was so isolated where whenever I got around people, I started to get nervous. So I think being back in school really helped me just get that social interaction again.
3: You
2: know, the thing that I hear from all four of you is that This isn't easy. It's not a one size fit all where everyone has the same experience. There's some nervousness about coming back and and connecting or reconnecting. There may be some excitement, but there's also this realization that you all are students, but you're people first. And that means that you're navigating lots of things. High school in the community is known for its emphasis on social justice and leadership and really affirming the role of students and young people in being engaged with community, but also calling out injustice. What has it been like over this last year where we've seen all of the uprisings over the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor and others, and navigating locally the impact? What has that been for you? And any of you weigh in on that, please.
4: Um, As far as just being in my community and being active, as far as protesting and and in the beginning, I felt like I wasn't doing a lot. Like I was doing my research and I was spreading information to family and friends, but I was like, I want to go out and protest and actually be a part of the cause physically. I was like spreading different newsletters that were sent to me during like in my email. But I just kept bugging my mom like, I need to go out and protest. I wanna hold up a sign. I wanna shout um, and remember these people's names and acknowledge that they died, but they didn't die in vain. So being able to protest and stand with people who looked like me and didn't look like me, it was really powerful. And it shows, it just goes back to HSC, being able to stand with my peers Like during different programs, um, like helping the under, like lower classmen, it just shows that when you come together, you can create something big, bigger than yourself.
2: Zochi, I want to ask you because, you know, one of the things that has happened for young people is that you are navigating multiple disruptions in a way that affects young people deeply, but that your voices are not always heard. When you think about all that you've come through and learned over this time, what is it that you want adults and others to know so that we don't make the mistakes of the past?
3: So um, I want like adults to like hear us because normally when we like say something, they don't like almost like they don't understand what we're trying to say. And sometimes it's confusing and, you know, they don't like get us. And we want them to, like, hear us, um, like, what we want to say, you
1: know. I really try my best to advocate for not only myself, but my peers and other students in the school, because there's just so much going on, and some adults try and brush it off. They're like, oh, you're just a kid. You don't know what you're talking about. Or, oh, like you can't do that because such and such, which isn't true because like all of us have done, we've created projects that help our local community. And so just after a while of advocating, you know, going back and forth, even when you're shut down every time, the message eventually gets to them.
2: Given what you've been doing to advocate for yourselves and for other students, what sorts of resources or supports would you like to see in your schools, in your communities, just in general, to really help young people not just make it through, but thrive?
1: I would like to see more safe, like safe spaces and areas where LGBTQ people are not only supported or welcome they're genuinely cared about and loved.
2: Thank you Alex and thank you for affirming the humanity in all of us. Anyone else what types of supports or or resources would you like to see for students and young people?
3: Over quarantine I really realized that one of the biggest things it affected was my mental health and I know it affected multiple other people. People who were dealing with mental illnesses like depression or just a lot of anxiety and like their home or in a space where they really don't feel comfortable or available to talk to anybody. So for me personally, but other people like me, I think one of the biggest resources or even it doesn't even have to be money. Like when people say resources, that's the number one thing people think about, but just an opportunity to be yourself, but to just be comfortable with someone else. I feel like that's the biggest thing I want to see. Someone people here to just talk to.
2: Mm-hmm. So my last question to all four of you is, what are you most looking forward to this year? It doesn't have to just be school. It can be anything in general. Alex, I'll start with you. What are you looking forward to?
1: Um, in this school, we don't use the word clubs. We call them pro clubs. And I'm really looking forward to actually having uh, pride Proco in person, and just for people to actually see that they're not alone. There are other people like them.
2: Thank you. Imani, what about you? What are you looking forward to?
4: I would say academically, just getting into my dream college or just college at all, because I know it's a very big accomplishment when you graduate. And then personally, I really want to define what it is that makes me happy and what my happiness means to me. I really need to know and want to know what makes me happy and how I can go to that place every time I'm not feeling okay.
2: Thank you. Zochi. what are you looking forward to?
3: So I've been all over the place. I can't like really like justify it, but what I want to do is like, when I get out of uh, high school, I want to, like, try to take a break and, like, catch up on things, you know, because I've been all over the place. You know, my head is, like, you know, messed up. I like to, like, you know, discover new things. So I want to, like, travel around or, like, get a job that, like, like makes you go, like, around the world and, like, discover new things.
2: Thank you. Erica, what about you? What are you looking forward to?
3: Um, For me, I think kind of in part of what Imani was saying I think just finding me like I left school when I was a sophomore and I'm now a senior I'm turning 18 I have a job like I'm going to college soon so it's like I want to find out what works for me I just want to find a way that I can live being me but to be successful I'm so excited to just like find my spit find my routine find who I am so that I'm happy in the place that I am
2: Erica, Alex, Imani, and Zochi are high school students at New Haven's High School in the community. Coming up, we talk with a professor about the long-term impact of COVID on our education system. And later, how does the Supreme Court's ruling on the NCAA affect student-athletes like UConn superstar Paige Beckers? This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted, I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Over the last two weeks, Eastern states have dealt with the aftermath of hurricanes Henri and Ida. In 2020, FEMA made 10 major disaster declarations related to storms across the US. And now as climate change makes hurricane season longer and more intense, researchers are studying how schools respond to disaster. For Dr. Cassandra Davis, there are strong parallels between how schools respond to these natural events and the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Davis is Research Associate Professor of Public Policy at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and she joins us now. Dr. Davis, welcome to Disrupted. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. You know, the timeliness of your scholarship, given all that's happening in the country right now, not just the return to buildings, because it wasn't about a return to school, but a return to buildings, as well as some of the natural weather-related disasters we're affecting, is so important. And so your scholarship on environmental disruptions and education looked at the impact of hurricanes on school districts, Talk to our listeners about what you and your team found as you looked at communities in North Carolina and Texas.
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, so it it really kind of started from I originally worked with school districts um, and superintendents, um, and particularly those that were in low performing areas. Um, and within, I believe around October, on October 2016, when Hurricane Matthew hit eastern North Carolina. I knew instantly, you know, are will we forget the impact of Hurricane Matthew or a year from now will we say, well, these districts just can't get their life together, you know? And so that really kind of took me down a path of just really wanting to explore the impact or the ways in which that hurricanes or flooding or natural disasters are um, kind of proportionately, but really not, that are hitting populations of people across the U.S., and to what extent that impacted their schooling. So like you said, we looked at North Carolina and Texas, and we found some really interesting things. The first kind of major thing was that recovery from the educator side will take time, right? We kind of tend to see that when a hurricane hits a couple of weeks later, I mean, uh, unfortunately, a hurricane just hit in New Orleans. And so this idea we see clean streets, oh, everything's back to normal. And the reality, that's not the case. Some great work out of from Dr. Gates um, looked at Hurricane Katrina um, and suggested that natural disasters such as hurricanes tend to exacerbate pre existing conditions. So, if your community is doing well, um, a hurricane will, in some extent, or disaster will, in some extent, kind of excel the economic well being of that place. If your community is not doing well, you will regress. And so that is kind of what we expected to see, especially, particularly with looking in school districts. Another thing that we noticed in the literature, there's very little literature that really talks about disasters in schools. It's it's sparse. um, Sometimes it's contradictory. um, But a lot of the times, most of the time, most of the articles focus strictly on students, which is understandable. And so I really had, as a... um, As a descendant of educators, as a former classroom teacher myself, I wanted to know the ways in which this impacted educators. And so we found that educators were losing their mind, rightfully so, (laughs) as the students were, and that they oftentimes would take up, kind of be the first... We hear this phrase: "The first responder on scene," where they're taking care of the needs of their students. They're ensuring that they have food, their medicines, um, shelter, housing, um, supplies for their family, and they're oftentimes leaving themselves behind. And they also just went through the the storm as well. So we 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 noted one: recovery takes time. Two: don't forget about your educators, especially in their mental health and well-being. If they're not on it, or if they're not able to be on it because of their situations, how can we possibly expect them to teach?
2: You know, before we talk about COVID, I want to dive into something that you said about seeing educators as first responders. We now have a sense of the impact of trauma and repeated exposure to trauma on first responders like law enforcement officers or firefighters. I'm thinking of now approaching the 20th anniversary of 9-11. We understand that just going back to work does not make things better or make things right. How can we better give that kind of grace and space to our educators that says, we understand what you're going through. We just won't drop you back into the classroom and say, make things the same. Such
0: a great question, especially you know that layer of educators that are in um, communities um, or districts that have been identified as low performing. I mean, the pressure is beyond (laughs) beyond comparable. Um, We don't tend to have that type of pressure to my extent in um, nine to five jobs, where the moment something happens, like there's questions about yourself and your integrity and your ethics and, and, and all of that, but. We see um, teacher turnover rates extremely high in these areas. We see principal turnover rates incredibly high. There's definitely this deficit that there's either the students are failing, the parents are failing, or the educators are failing, or a collaboration, a a, a, um, smorgasbord, a, a recipe, a soup of all of them are failing. We really ignore, as administrators, as policymakers, we really ignore the fact that there are structural things that are going on. I just finished up this report um, funded by Homeland Security where we were talking about, we were we request to really kind of uncover vulnerability. And this phrase gets thrown around so much in the disaster language. Ultimately, what we came up with is that we, a person is not vulnerable. <laughs> it is the systemic racism it, it is the these um, the things that were put in place that prevent them from receiving equitable resources to housing, health care, schooling, that puts them in places of low-lying flood zones where people should not be, but they were able to purchase the land because it was the cheap land. You know, the, they're not vulnerable. We've created a system that allows people, and unfortunately, people of color, um, that allows People of color, low income communities to kind of keep on being fed that false narrative. So, your question like hits me in so many different areas. And, but yes, it is, we we need to stop pointing to educators, why aren't you getting your life together? Not to be fair, some educators probably do, right? (laughs) But we need to stop pointing the fingers at the educators, at the parents, at the students, and start to look at the structure. how, how can I expect a principal to talk about preparedness, disaster preparedness, when they've given kind of the, hey, we're still waiting for our Title I funds so that we can buy toilet paper in this
4: building.
0: Preparedness is so out the window if we're looking at how to keep the lights on how to be sustainable for today. And so there's a, there's a real need for having this conversation, not just in education spaces, but also in disaster spaces and other spaces combined.
2: You know, one of the things that we emphasize on the show is how the choices that we make are interconnected and interrelated. But the choices that we have are often structured by institutions and processes that we don't control in terms of where people can afford to buy a home or to build a life for their family then has an impact on where they go to school, the kind of tax revenue that can support those districts. And that I think is to your point about vulnerability is constructed in a way that doesn't always respect individual choices. And at the same time, you have said, as we think about disaster, we think about preparation and relief, when we think about these storms, we also need to think about COVID-19 as having that broad environmental disruption and impact on these communities who aren't vulnerable, but who have been made vulnerable by those structures. Why do you see COVID-19 and coronavirus more broadly within the same sort of play of natural disasters that can have this impact? Absolutely. So
0: the analogy that I, I use is that um, when I'm studying hurricanes and kind of like a little bit of what I've said, um, we, we see a hurricane coming, we, we, he- we hear that it's about to hit, to some extent, this preparation, the hurricane is there present, and then a day later, later it's gone to another space. Even in those situations, our research has shown that educators have mentioned that it takes two, given two years. Um, We we surveyed educators after Hurricane Matthew um, and we asked them, this was Hurricane Matthew hit in 2016. We surveyed them in 2018. And we asked them to what extent did they feel like they have recovered? And about it was Closer to 25% of the educators said that they were still, they still noticed that students were weren't completely there yet. That's a surprising number if we're talking about two years later. So pointing back to COVID, um, if we think of COVID as this massive storm, this massive hurricane, um, we're still in it. You know, that it's it's not as if this storm is here today and then gone tomorrow. This COVID storm has, heaven's sakes, it's been here for I mean, it's, it's feeling like decades. It's been here for over a year. Um, and so what does that should then translate into what does cleanup look like? What does recovery look like? If we know that in certain places, ninth ward talking about new Orleans, that cleanup did not take, um, it it was not a month, you know, it, it took years. Some people could still argue that they're still kind of in the process of cleaning up from Katrina. Um, so that we know that, the, the areas, um, unfortunately low income communities of color, when they get hit, they get hit. And so really kind of framing this question of, as we hopefully transition out of this kind of COVID hurricane um, which not to minimize one or the other. I mean, it's, it's bringing the same type of destruction, except there's far more deaths. Um, I mean, maybe it's a current, um, COVID tsunami. I ha- it's, it's, it's a disaster. It's an absolute disaster. And it impacts students, it impacts people, and we're all impacted in some way, shape, or form.
2: And it's a disaster that has become politicized in so many ways that often, you know, we, we often talk about kids first, students first, but often students seem to be last and educators even more so when we think about that. What would you say then is the big lesson or takeaway as we come through this pandemic and prepare for those yet to come? What's the big takeaway that you say to people, look, don't let this experience go by without us addressing this or doing this differently?
0: I think there, there's two things. One thing for the patients as an educator, as a as, like I said, as a former classroom teacher, current um, professor, um, being patient with recovery process, that the recovery process is much longer, way longer than we ever anticipate. And that's from my working with hurricanes, like I said, short periods, we're talking potentially two months, two years of recovery process. Um, in looking at COVID, seeing that it's been around for over a year, um, that that recovery process I I mean, I'm not even able to estimate how long that recovery process looks for different groups, but recognizing that recovery takes time. Um, On the other side of that, um, there's a little bit of urgency, (laughs) maybe a lot of bit of urgency, um, that yes, recovery takes time, but that's not the excuse to be like, well, those students will just be what those students are. Um, Recommendation would be to, really kind of having these um, honest conversation about structural racism within schools, within school settings. So having that conversation that one, recovery takes time, but two, we need to be preparing, like, what are the things that we need to do to start this conversation of how this looks? Understanding equity in our schooling and resources and access. How are we building, um, maintaining, strengthening our relationship with our family members. They're going through COVID just like we are. So what acts are we doing to improve that relationship? Um, What are the needs? I mean, besides health, like, you know, besides these other needs, what what are some holes that we see in our current system that aren't making it? I.e., our students don't have access to Wi-Fi. So really kind of having these uncomfortable, but honest, but needed conversations to then build this foundation of a strong recovery. That, again, will take us time.
2: You know, you and I are both educators at the collegiate level, and we're hearing the conversations about this is a moment to rethink higher education or to reshape how we approach education and learning for the students we encounter. But in the K through 12 or preschool through 12 space, many talking heads have said, this is the moment that we will get it right. This is the moment where we will center equity, because we understand that just giving a student a Chromebook and maybe Wi-Fi access does not guarantee that it actually is teaching them in the way that they need. Given your scholarship, given your experience, are you hopeful that we will actually get things right and turn the corner when it comes to equity and learning? Or are you concerned that we'll just go back to how things were, once that sort of short-term memory of the pain points goes by? I have to be hopeful. I have to be.
0: Um, But am I concerned? Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Without a shadow of a doubt. The simple fact of a whisper of critical race theory and things get shut down. So how, how can we have How can we have honest conversations about where we are if we can't even talk about race? If we can't even talk about structural racism, how can we have an honest conversation about equity? I fear that equity is going to be, as I use it all the time, I fear that equity is going to be the new diversity. Like the word that the buzzword that we say um, when we want to show our friends that we're that we're woke, that we got it together. Um, and then we just say it and then we move forward. So I, I, I have to be hopeful. I have to be. Um, but I am absolutely concerned. Absolutely.
2: Our listeners will hear this conversation. They will hear the message of hope balanced against the need to be vigilant and connected what are one or two things that you would say to to residents, to people in communities about how they can actually have an impact on supporting schools in their totality? So students and educators and families, but really ensuring that the way forward for education is to be mindful of the things that you've talked about.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Great, great, great. So I've kind of, um, I've switched and COVID time has had me, given me the space to kind of reflect um, about myself, you know, my wellness, spiritually, um, academically, professionally, all that. And something that I've really been leaning on is community. Um, I've been doing just different studies, um, I you know, trying trying to, trying to expand my, my knowledge in different languages, but just doing different studies. And I came across this, this great um, phrase and the you, which all this time I thought was a singular you, you turned out to be plural. And so it's, it, it's basically about like you got to be accountable. Right. And so all this time I, I'm thinking that in the language, my Western eyes, I'm, I'm thinking that um, my American Eyes. I'm thinking that the U is singular. So of course I have to be accountable. Of course I do. But in the translation, it's actually the U is plural. So that means that I'm accountable for you. You're accountable for me. If my home girl over here is like, I need to be helping up my home. Like if my neighbor over here, so really this this COVID space that we're in, it's really had me kind of reflect on how am I, how am I either. Um, aligning with a white supremacy culture that's very individualistic, um, that is me, 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 and I have to work by myself? Or to what extent am I fighting against that and really applying the you as in plural? So my encouragement, not saying that people need a God and and do their studies. I mean, you can, absolutely. But my encouragement is to reflect on what does you plural mean? Another thing within our district, we're learning that students, obviously, they can't have lunchtime indoors. It's COVID. And so people in the community are coming together to create tents, bringing yoga mats so that students can sit outside and eat. And so it's like, I have no connection to this. I could easily keep on driving. And this is by no, no mean by trying to pat myself on the back and say, hey, look at the great things I'm doing. The, the one thing that, that I'm saying is, is hopefully that it's convicting. It's convicting for me. And I hope that it's also convicting for others that that might not be a space that I'm connected with. My son will likely not, you know, we have no idea. We'll probably not even go to that school, but how do I assist and support the community? Um, I just feel like if we are more you plural centered, then we can get to these questions about equity, we can talk about critical race theory without people clutching their pearls. Like, you know, we, we, we can have these great conversations and building conversations and we might not agree with everything and that's perfectly fine, but really focusing on my brother has a need, I have a need, my sister has a need, my family, my community, my neighbor has a need. So what what does this mean?
2: It's a great reminder of in building community, Sometimes the most important thing we can do is start right where we are. Dr. Cassandra R. Davis is research associate professor of public policy at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Dr. Davis, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me and be safe. Coming up, we learn about the future of college sports with ESPN writer, Michelle Vopel. This is Disrupted, stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted, I'm Kalila Brown-Dean.
3: With the light that I have now um, as a white woman who leads a black-led sport um, and celebrated here I want to show a light on black women. Um, they don't get the media coverage that they deserve. They've given so much to this sport and the community and society as a whole and their value is un- undeniable. Um, and in the WNBA last season, the postseason awards, 80% of the winners were black, but they got half the amount of coverage as the white athletes. So I think it's time for change. Um, sports media holds the key to storylines. Sports media and sponsors tell us who is valuable. And you have told the world that I matter today and everyone who voted, thank you. Um, but I think we should use this power together to also celebrate black women.
2: That's audio of UConn women's basketball star Paige Beckers accepting the ESPY Award for Best College Athlete in Women's Sports. In her freshman year, Beckers rocketed to become one of the biggest names in college sports. And thanks to a series of rulings from the Supreme Court and the NCAA, Beckers and other athletes could soon reap the financial rewards of their hard work. In a landmark change, student-athletes can now make money off their name, image, and likeness. Michelle Vopel is a women's basketball and college sports writer for ESPN and ESPNW. She's covered the recent developments in amateur athletics and is here to talk about how players are gaining more control over their likeness. Michelle, welcome to Disrupted.
5: Thank you for having me.
2: You know, as we're thinking about the return to school and the return to campus, students have really been struggling to figure out how they balance all of these things amid uncertainty. But for student athletes, those stakes are something that they've been talking about for a long time, about balancing their personal struggles or demands with the demands of being a scholar athlete. For those in the audience who may not be aware of what that may look like, Talk to us a little about what student athletes have been dealing with historically.
5: I think you know the the NCAA's rules um, have been archaic for a while, and in, in the fact that they don't uh, they don't really understand some of the the, the real struggles. That, that college athletes have, but also some of the real opportunities that they have that the NCAA hasn't allowed them to take advantage of. And what we're seeing now, and and I really love to see it because I've been covering sports now for over 30 years, and I finally feel like athletes are actually finding their voice obviously social media has a lot to do with that because it's given them a platform but they're not accepting some of the things that athletes for so many decades just accepted this comes with being a college athlete they're saying you know we have a seat at this table and we we want to be acknowledged for what we do we want to be understood that that the conversation on mental health is not one we're going to table anymore it's it's really at the forefront. And then conversations on LGBT rights, Black Lives Matter. Those are non-negotiable. Thank goodness. You know, like you, 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 as a coach or an administrator, if you think that you can ignore these things anymore, you're you're wrong. You can't. And so there's um, some power that I think has correctly gone to the student athletes that they didn't have for a very long time.
2: You know, I think a lot of people. Listen to student athletes talk about their challenges, and they say, "Listen, you've got all this privilege. you've gotten support for your academics and scholarships you you know get team gear. What do you have to complain about?" But what we learned in Connecticut from a men's basketball player a few years ago at UConn is that many student athletes are struggling to be able to afford basic necessities. Because of their amateur status, they're prohibited from working in other ways. And the things that we know become struggles for every student becomes magnified in this arena. How does the NCAA defend its decision, and the schools, frankly, to profit from these student athletes and not allow that revenue to go directly to the people who generate it.
5: I don't think they can defend it anymore. You know, for years, it was sort of this idea of preserving the, uh, the integrity of amateurism. And, and we all know that obviously you got, you know, when you look back on the whole Olympic history of amateurism, what was that? That was classism. That was um, exploitation in a lot of ways. And the athletes, when they say this, then for so many years were just mocked. You know, there's a, what do you like? If somebody paid me to, you know, play basketball uh, or gave me a scholarship to play basketball, they wouldn't have to pay me if they gave me all this stuff. Well, I always say there's nothing easier than saying what you do in somebody else's life, right? I guarantee you the same people who were saying that if they were actually in those athletes' shoes would be saying, how come my jersey is selling for $75 in the bookstore? And I don't see a penny of that. And again, then somebody would say, well, you get a scholarship. Well, we found out, especially with with, um, you know, certain athletes at certain programs, they're worth much more to their schools than their scholarship. For better or worse, uh, we do live in a capitalistic society and, and we tell people that it's okay to benefit from your talents. So I think the NCAA, Fought this uh, name, image, and likeness. They've fought all of this. I mean, it's a different landscape. We're going to see people be able to benefit. We're going to see new problems. That's what you, you know. You always have. But I feel like the power now is going more in in an even way. And. I feel like that's necessary because nobody ever would say, Hey, administrator, I don't really think you need to have a golf club membership. I don't think you need to have a courtesy car. I don't think you need to have the company or the school jet. Nobody would ever say that. Like once you reach some this certain level of power in academia or in sports, like nothing's off the table in terms of what you deserve. But we would always be telling athletes, like, what are you complaining about? You don't really need pizza money. You don't really need money to go out on a date on Friday night, I mean, come on.
2: Let's talk about that power, that sharing of money, and what is leading to the shift that you're mentioning because it does feel like a major shift for college sports but in general about how we affirm people's right to decide what they own in their own lives. And much of that shift is coming from the US Supreme Court, which had a 9-0 ruling against the NCAA for preventing student athletes from receiving education-related payments. And then the NCAA follows up in its decision to say, yes, this thing that we have been overseeing for decades, we are going to make this change. What do you see as the two major consequences of this moving forward? Because as you said, creating this new opportunity will create new problems. But to even have this entity make this decision is groundbreaking.
5: It is. Uh, You're absolutely right. And I I think it's, there's two points I always think of with, with with when there are changes um, that involve the NCAA in college sports. And one, of course, is that the NCAA is, is college sports. It's, you know, it's the presidents and, and the athletic directors, the administrators, they're directing the NCAA. So in, in, in some ways, you know, when they don't like something the NCAA does, they, they try to separate themselves from it as if it's not them, which we see in a lot of different, you know, bureaucracies and organizations. But the other thing is that the NCAA... And college sports and colleges themselves have sort of a history of being against something before they're for it. And you could say that about integration. You could say that about women's athletics. Now it's the idea of the economic empowerment of athletes. So they fought it and fought it and fought it. I mean, uh, this fight is decades old. Now they're trying to say, okay, this has happened. How are we going to um, respond to it? Uh, you know a lot of the things that they would have uh given penalties for for years now they they can't you know if somebody gets a sponsorship from a local car dealership he or she is allowed to do that so you hope that they have parents that are helping or guardians that are helping but you also hope that the schools understand now this is part of what they have to do you know before it was like guarding against it now they have to be part of that and help them and and shepherd them through that and, and their best interests, not just the schools or the coaches or, or the teams. They have to also look out individually for these kids.
2: You know, one of the stories that I think will need to be covered quite a bit is the issue of equity. So I graduated from two universities with powerhouse sports programs, the University of Virginia and The Ohio State University. And we always thought What is the makeup of the athletes on these teams versus the people who are making decisions about their lives? When you think about who will benefit from this, there may be a select few who really benefit from having access, but what does this look like for the majority of student athletes who may not be in programs where it can really generate that kind of revenue? Does this still help the bulk of those athletes?
5: You know, I don't know how much it changes their day to day and what their their experience is like. There's always, I think, a fear on my on my part of when you have this big consortium of, of, of power, um, where does that leave everybody else, um, including obviously historically black colleges that have been um, shortchanged. In, in so many ways, in terms of of the you know the athletic world and and how um, marginalized sometimes they are. So for for all of us who who are you know sort of in the in the business of watching all this and chronicling it, we're on a learning process too. You know, in terms of what we're watching for, what questions we're asking, and then to hold the you know to hold certain people's feet to the fire you know, and, and people who sometimes hide behind different things like, oh, the NCA says this. Okay, well, now this is on you. What are you doing about it? Um, and, and that's going to be, you know, the responsibility. It's not going to just be covering, you know, game results. There's a lot behind the scenes that we already do, but I think it's going to be even a bigger responsibility going
2: forward. I want to talk about how people with platforms have been using their access and using that spotlight and their personal sense of responsibility to magnify some of the things that you talked about. And one of those student athletes is Paige Beckers, who is a UConn women's basketball phenom. But instead of just saying this is an opportunity for me to advance and to benefit from having control over my name, image and likeness, Beckers, or Paige Buckets, as fans call her, has used that platform to say, I am a white woman in a sport that is populated by Black women, but is not covered in affirming their position. What could this decision or, or this set of decisions mean for an athlete like Paige Beckers?
5: One thing, I I give her a lot of credit for somebody as young as she was to understand that that moment was a great moment to use her platform to elevate other people. You know, that, that isn't something we necessarily, you know, would have seen. I, I, I think that today's younger people maybe have more of a sense of that. I, I don't know that that's something I would have seen 10 years ago from somebody for somebody like Paige, she has role models, um, you know, at the next level that she wants to get to who are saying, uh, both, both black women and white women, and and it's it's important because I think she is looking to both. She's looking to the fact that it's always been black women who've led this fight, and then it's white women who've said, "I do have to acknowledge privilege, and then I also have to use it in a way that's going to be um, empowering." And so, she's got a ch- a chance to keep that dialogue going on a college level not just a, a wmba level and um that that's kind of interesting and cool too because that's part of the whole athlete empowerment that you know they're not just there to you know say you know one game at a time or whatever they're, they they have something to say and and it's worth listening to
2: do you think that this moment or this sort of set of moments may actually encourage athletes to stay in college longer. So to not feel the push to jump to professional sports if they have the opportunity, because maybe finally they will be recognized or have the opportunity to be recognized and respected where they are. Uh,
5: It is interesting. I think uh, a lot of it is gonna be sport to sport and athlete to athlete based on what economically uh, you might be leaving on the table if you're staying in college. Uh, you know, one thing that I, I do like about this is that, and this is especially the case for, you know, football and men's basketball players, maybe, you know, the, the guy who's going to be a number one or number two draft pick um, is not going to stay or it, maybe even a first round pick. And I totally get that. Like, you know, he's he's just economically, there's too much to leave on the table by staying. But, Other guys may say, look, you know, I can stay in college. I can make some money in college, you know, through name, image and likeness and get my degree and then still have a chance to play professionally. So I think that's that's a a really positive thing. And then on the women's side, where the money isn't anywhere near as big in the in the pro game, but for some people, you know, it's still important, you know, I mean, depending on where you where you're coming from and your economic, you know, station in life making, you know, fifty six sixty thousand dollars $60,000 may not sound like a lot to somebody else, but to some people that's a, that's huge for them. And that's huge for their families. And then a chance to go overseas. So, you know, for those women, I think maybe there's less of a chance that they may go out their junior year. If they were, if they're eligible to go say to the WNBA, maybe they're like, no, I can stay another year. You know, I've made some money now here. Uh, I can stay for a year. And, you, you, you know, you talk about Paige and some other athletes, sometimes their greatest platform is going to come when they're in college. For some people, their their college years are going to be when their platform is actually the biggest and when their earning potential in terms of endorsements and different things like that will, will be large. So that's another thing that they can now, like you said, might be like, oh, I want to stay another year, you know, because um, there's a brand. Here with my school, that's pretty big. And I, I'm sort of wedded to that brand right now, and that's a good thing.
2: That was Michelle Vogel, a women's basketball and college sports writer for ESPN and ESPNW. Disrupted is produced by James Scoville Wolf, Shekinah Collier, and Katie Tolarski. I'm Kalila Brown Dean. Thanks for listening.